So if you had a, the pleasure, like me, of growing up in the beautiful country of Indonesia in the late 90s, and we even had the privilege of going to a national school, I'm sure each of us fondly remembers the joys of attending a weekly flag ceremony, right? Where we get to stand out in the field in the Indonesian sun first thing in the morning and for like half an hour to reenact the declaration of our country's independence, right? We get to salute the flag, sing our national anthems and read the declaration of independence while watching some of our friends collapse from heat stroke. Now, I don't know if schools nowadays still do that, but you know, those were the days and it was certainly memorable. And I think we go through the trouble of doing that and we think that it's worth it because the flag ceremony intends to remind us of the sacrifices our predecessors had to make so that we can be an independent nation, right? I remember the rhetoric that was being pushed there is like with our guts and our sharpened bamboo, we fought off the guns of the colonists. To get the message across, right, that the freedom that we enjoy now was indeed so costly. Therefore, we must always honor what they've done by never letting our lands be conquered again, right? So that Indonesians in the future don't ever have to go through what they went through. In other words, we commemorate these periods of hardship and trauma in order to consolidate the lessons they have taught us. Because it's really hard to argue against the famous saying that if we do not learn from our history, we are doomed to repeat it. Now, this morning, we're, we're not going to so much commemorate, but we'll definitely are going to meditate and try to consolidate the lessons from what the biblical authors consider to be the most traumatic thing that's ever happened to the human race. We'll be continuing in our series on the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and last week, we studied God's announcement that a flood is coming. And now we're up to the point of the story where Noah has built the ark and he is about to enter. Today, we're going to be studying the events of the flood itself and really trying to identify what the text really wants to emphasize through how it's telling the story. Okay, so let's first read our passage to get us started. It comes from Genesis chapter 7, verse 6 to chapter 8, verse 1a. This is the word of God. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives uh, with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood, of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps underground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days... The the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons, with him, entered the ark, and every beast according to its kind, 
and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. The flood continued. Forty days on the earth, the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heavens were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Uh, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind, everything on the dry land whose nostrils were the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark And the waters prevailed over the earth 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and the livestock that were with him in the ark. Friends, I can really understand if you thought what we just read was not only a bit dark, but quite wordy and repetitive. Like we're given the list of animals like five times. But the repetition is actually by design. And the information we're told is certainly not random. Because the words that are chosen to tell the story and the repetition that it employs actually clues us in to some of the most important themes that we'll see be developed throughout the biblical narrative. And I think that there are at least three major ones that is worth discussing this morning that can be summarized in one thing that we should be doing. Okay, so our three points. Our flood teach, the flood story teaches us to One, set our hopes on God's plans for the future. Two, while being faithful to God's purposes in the present. And three, because of God's promises of the past. God's plans for the future, purposes in the present, and promises of the past. Okay, so let's get into it. We're going to be doing quite a bit of biblical theology, looking at things in light of the larger themes of Scripture. So it's going to be fun, at least for me. So, point one, set our hopes on God's plan for the future. Okay, before I start really talking properly about the text, I feel like I really should address what could be an elephant in the room for a lot of people. Namely, the historicity of what is being described here. Like, did it actually happen this way in creation, right? Like, for example, scientists estimate that there are over 5 million species of animals on land. So two of every kind means more like than 10 million animals in one vessel. Like how on earth could that be true? And atheists have really pointed to to the story to dismiss the legitimacy of the Bible. Now, these are interesting questions for sure, and this really ultimately has to do with what it is that we mean when we take the Bible literally. However, I think if we focus and discuss this question on the sermon while we're studying 
um, this particular text, I would argue that this would actually be missing the point. Because this isn't at all what the biblical authors are trying to do. The biblical authors thought of the universe, the world, in completely different terms. Therefore, they're not trying to give a scientific account of an interesting meteorological phenomenon, right? Rather, what the biblical author is, is clearly trying to do is to describe what happens in the days of Noah as the collapse of the entire cosmos. Right? The undoing of this cosmic order, a decreation event. You see, the biblical authors did not imagine the cosmos like we do. What the Bible is referring to as the earth is not the globe as we would imagine it. In fact, until about 70 years ago, no one knew before the first satellite pictures what the globe actually looks like. So when the Bible is talking about the earth, it's not talking about planet earth, right? But more generally, the dry land, the place that God created on the third day out of the seas, out of the waters, to be the realm where humans and terrestrial animals can survive. Now, if you remember the second day of creation in Chapter 1, it also says that what did God do? He separated the waters from the waters. And there is what's called the waters below. So in the biblical imagination, right, the dry land is basically surrounded by waters on all sides, the waters below, the waters above, and the seas on the side, right? By the way, uh, also by these waters is the windows of heavens through which the waters above flow down to the earth. And the deposits under the ground, they're called the fountains of the deep. Okay, if you're having a hard time visualizing all this, I encourage you, if you're a visual learner, to Google search biblical cosmology so you can see what's going on. Because grasping this is really the only way we can understand was written in verse 11 about where the waters came from, right? The fountains of the deep burst forth, it went up, and then the windows of heaven opened, and the waters up there went down, right? So what's going on was the undoing of the order that God placed in the second day of creation, resulting in the expiration, the death of everything that had the breath of life, which again, right, uh, is the list of the animals that we read in verses 14, 21, and 23. And it's almost identical to the list of the creatures that were created in days 5 and 6. So this is why I'm telling you all this, right? It's as we discussed last week that God's judgment against sin is Him removing the order He established in creation at which point creation implodes upon itself, causing this destruction and a cosmic collapse. Now the text then contrasts that to, how, to what happens to those who have embarked on Noah's Ark. Right? He, it, it's contrast with the chaos and judgment that's going on elsewhere in the world. As creation disintegrates into disorder, God is in an orderly and methodical way organizing the survival of the seed of new creation into the sanctuary, the ark, which we, he 
has provided. You see, through the ark, God has created himself a little microcosmos, a little floating Eden, which preserves those with whom he will restore what has been destroyed through a judgment. Right? And the story here is telling us that everything that was destroyed in the flood has already been kept safe by God in this refuge. They are preserved so that they can repopulate the earth, this renewed sinless creation that has been cleansed, assuring us that nothing good that God has created will be lost to the waters of judgment. Right? Hence the picture is, outside of the ark, everything is falling apart without God, but inside the ark is the Garden of Eden. So how is all this relevant to us? Although uh, we will see in you know, a couple of chapters that God uh, promises to never destroy creation again, the prophets of the Old Testament and the New Testament does warn us that there will be another cleansing. A time when the sinful order that we're still experiencing and suffering through in the world shall be dealt with, but this time for good there will be a final judgment, when instead of washing the world with water, God will baptize the world with fire. And it will be purged of all of its impurities forever in the day of the Lord. Such that creation might be worthy again to be dwelling place of the Most High. On that day, friends, those who has placed their faith in the true and better Noah Jesus Christ, the truly righteous one, those who have trusted in Jesus' righteous obedience on the cross, like the sons of Noah who trusted the obedience of their father, will escape judgment and will never likewise have to ever worry again about evil. If you skip through to the final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, this is what John imagined, doesn't it? How after, in the final day, after God cleanses everything in the day of the Lord, there will be a procession of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, as we read uh, in our assurance of pardon. Everyone who has been saved by Christ will go and enter the heavenly temple, the ultimate glorious reality that the ark is pointing towards, right? This eternal sanctuary where we will be secured and protected from sin forever. Friends, this is our future destiny, what God's ultimate plan is for us. But even now, as we are still waiting for that day, we actually can enjoy somewhat what it's like to be in this protected refuge. For just like how in verse 16 it says that God shuts Noah and everyone with him in the ark. It wasn't like Noah closed the door himself. God did it. The Holy Spirit also now seals us for the day of redemption, Ephesians says. In fact, the Holy Spirit is the refuge himself. He is the assurance of our salvation. And where does, by the way, the New Testament say the Spirit of God dwells? What now serves as God's temple? We are, aren't we? 
both individually and collectively as the church. And throughout the series on Genesis that we've been on, right, what did we learn God's temple is supposed to point to? Right, the Garden of Eden. Therefore, right, because we are all temples of God, that means right now we all, to a limited extent, can access the blessings of Eden. When we're keeping in step with the Spirit and drawing near to its protective presence, when we're in the fellowship of believers where the Holy Spirit dwells, even though everything is collapsing upon itself to chaos because of sin, we can experience the heavenly realities that are to come when Christ finally returns. Though admittedly, in a much more limited sense. You see, Noah's family got to very temporarily enjoy a sinless creation. But in the ark, they've also experienced already a real, though imperfect, version of the Garden of Eden. They still were in a place where there was enough food for everyone and humans and animals were at peace, even though the ark was probably a little more cramped than the Garden of Eden. And the garden probably smelled a lot better as well because of all the animals. Nonetheless, it's still way better than what was going on out there. It's still Eden instead of cosmic collapse. So what does the blessing of Eden, this limited experience of Eden, look like today? It looks like trust in God's generosity instead of material resources. It looks like genuinely self-sacrificial, non-transactional relationship. It looks like reconciliation and peace with one another. And I can go on with the list, right? But imagine, friends, what kind of realities do you think will exist in a sinless creation that's been reconciled with God? Or I think perhaps more importantly, to ask is what can we do to make this reality an experienced thing? Because, friends, ultimately, like the ark floating on top of this cosmic collapse, our presence as a people who are sealed for salvation in the midst of a sinful culture is supposed to be a powerful alternative, counter-narrative to the values that the sinful culture has given themselves over to, which is point two. Right? We are supposed to hold on to the hope, God's plans for the future, Point two, while being faithful to God's promises in the present. So look again here at the narrative of the flood itself in verses 17-24. There's something going on there in Hebrew that's not as clear in the ESV translations that we have in our printouts. And that's the wordplay that's happening through the repetition of the phrase that you see there, the waters prevail. It happens like four or five times in a paragraph. Now, the word that's translated as prevailed there is gavar, which also can be translated as to be mighty, which I think is, uh, it brings out more of the wordplay here. Because uh, who was the last person who was mighty in the land, in the narrative? That's right, the Nephilim, right? Who were born out of some perverse sexual relations all the way in verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 4. We're also uh, described there as the mighty men of old. 
or in Hebrew, the Geborim, which is like the noun version of the word Govar. And so what the, these mighty men, these Geborim, do in this narrative, they were the ones who defiled the land with violence and bloodshed. See, friends, uh, the ones who God refers to as these mighty warriors are the ones who ended up creating these violent empires who ended up oppressing God's people. In a few chapters, we will meet Nimrod, who is the next person who is described as a Giborim. And he is said to be the founder of Assyria and Babylon, the greatest enemies who destroyed Israel's holy temple and brought them into exile. So the text is saying that it was these people who relied on their might were particularly guilty for the mess that the world is in. So it seems like what the Bible wants to show us is that God intends to show that there is an inversion. How these men who accrue and accumulate wealth and power through the might of their violence, that they have unleashed death and chaos into the world. But it was more than they were bargained for. Because what God does is send a flood to show them who is really mighty. Because the water that God releases to purify the creation that they corrupted is more mighty, is more gavar than the mighty men, than the giverim. Does that make sense? God is telling us there is a measure for measure response for what has corrupted creation. Now, Imagine this, hearing this as an Israelite, a people who for most of your history have been subject to the tyranny of these mighty men. In fact, in all likelihood, they were experiencing the threat of their violence right now under some evil empire. Seeing a passage like this will not only assure them that God will not let them get away with any of the harm that they've done, Justice will be served, but it also offers us a powerful reason to distance ourselves from relying on might like they do. It motivates us to actually occupy ourselves with what God is up to. You see, because if we were living under the tyranny of evil men, it might be natural for us to believe that the way out, the way to be free of this tyranny is to grow in might ourselves. Such that we would be in a position where we're not threatened by anyone else's violence, but even be mighty enough to be the ones imposing our wills and not the other way around, to beat them at their own game. But human history, friends, shows us that this does not solve any, anything, does it? It just perpetuates the cycle of violence, but changes who the culprits are. In fact, this is what the Bible tells us happened to the nation of Israel once they started having might on their own. They started to lord their might over the weak. Just like Babylon and Assyria or the Romans or any of the godless nations that oppressed them would. And this is super counterproductive. Because doing this only made Israel guilty like their enemies and they tried to save themselves from evil by becoming evil themselves. Right? But in contrast, what this text is trying to emphasize, what does it say actually delivered God's people from evil? 
it's repeated four times in the past two chapters. It is doing as the Lord commanded. This is the reason why Noah and those who were with him survived. Thus, the author's point here in the narratives, I think, is unmistakable. That the way to salvation is not through our wisdom and power, but rather through obedience to the God's will. The message of the text is that there is the way of the world that leads to destruction and judgment, but also the words of God that leads to life. So how do we apply it? Let's think about what in our culture, what does our culture today say makes us mighty? Well, depends, first of all, really, on what your culture is. But for example, in the culture that I grew up in, might is not really any more measured by to what extent can you inflict violence to someone anymore. Rather, it seems like our culture tells us that money is what makes us mighty. The rich men are the mighty men of their time. They are our gibberim. And the constant grasping of wealth and riches fills the earth not so much with violence anymore, but with greed. Believing that our wealth, what we have, is what will make our name great and give us what we desire. Therefore, for example, in our culture, doing as God commanded includes understanding that the way of greed also leads to death. And that our wealth will not free us from tyranny but only enslaves us more to the love of money, so the obedience to the will of God is the path to freedom. Therefore, our purpose now, as those who have been secured and sealed in the salvation that God had provided, is to live consistently to that reality. To be this contrast community that isn't consumed by the chaos of the world's ways. But as we discussed before, testifies to a better heavenly future where what is expressed and what is championed is not greed, but generosity. Friends, living counterculturally like this is very hard, isn't it? We constantly fail at even wanting to obey the will of God because the tendency of our heart is always to rely on our own wisdom and power apart from God. And somehow, the world's message that there is success and salvation apart from obedience from God, be it through wealth or violence or whatever it may be, it somehow always seems appealing to our hearts. There's always somehow a part of us that believes that this is true. Although, We've tried pursuing this and we've failed to attain it for ourselves over and over again. Because indeed, as chapter 6 verse 5 says, every thoughts and intentions of the human heart is always evil all the time. Always leading us away from trusting the source of all that is good. So the way, friends, we can actually fight and resist this natural inclination of our hearts and remain faithful to our Lord is to deeply internalize the character of God who offered us this salvation. Such that we can ground 
and base our confidence that we, we will persevere through judgment, not in our own ability to obey, but on the God who gave us the opportunity to obey at all, on the God who opened the doors, which is point three. We are supposed to hold on to the hope of God's plans for the future while being faithful to God's purposes in the past, and point three, because of God's promises of the past. So, look with me again in verses 17 to 14, uh, 24. Another emphasis that we cannot miss is the totality of the destruction the flood has caused. All the mountains were covered. All flesh died. All creatures, all who had the breath of life. All, 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 all. The author wants us to have no misunderstanding. This was a complete annihilation. Everything was blotted out. That's how tragic of an event this was. Except, of course, as verse 23 points out, Noah and those who were with him in the ark. But if you read to the end of the story of Noah, the flow of the narrative actually suggests that Noah's rescue was never in an inevitability, right? God didn't have to do it. So the fact that God did actually points to that even in this act of severe justice, even in a situation that demands justice, God was actually exercising divine restraint. For although Noah was said to be righteous now, and he did demonstrate his righteousness by building this ark and trusting God. Not long after he gets off the ark, Noah will prove himself to be actually unworthy too. Noah is going to badly fail, like every other human in history. And friends, God certainly knew that this was going to be the case. He is the um, uh, omniscient, all-knowing God, even before he sent the flood. In fact, later in chapter 8, verse 21, before God promises to never strike down uh, every living thing again through the flood, he premises that promise by saying that he knows that the intentions of a man's heart is evil from his youth. So God knew from the start that humans are going to sin again and creation will eventually be corrupted by sin again, which begs the question, why did God bother to show restraint to Noah in the first place? Why didn't God just start from scratch or cut loss and scrap the project altogether? And I think the key to understanding this is to backtrack and to come back to what God said he intended to do with Noah after he survives the flood. Back in chapter 6, verse 18. Where he says, but I will establish my covenant with you. Friends, this is the first time in the Bible where this word covenant shows up. And this is going to be one of the crucial concepts of the Bible. It is absolutely key to understanding what our relationship with God is. It's that important that we named our church after it. So let me define it so that we're all on the same page. At risk of oversimplification, because we can go further into this, right? What a covenant basically is, is a formal partnership. Is this arrangement where two parties 
make binding promises to each other unto a common goal. However, while it is true that the terms and conditions of this arrangement are clearly defined, this is a much more personal arrangement than simply a work contract, right? And I think the easiest way to understand it is probably think about a covenant that I'm sure we all have seen in action, although to varying degrees of success. And that is the covenant of marriage. Whereby two people enters into this formal, official relationship, binding themselves to one another, to a lifelong faithfulness and devotion, partnering unto a common goal, right? Building a home together, raising a family. This is the kind of relationship God initiates with us from the very beginning. Because although this Noah story is the first time the word covenant is used, it doesn't mean that Noah was the first person God made a covenant with. Rather, the structure of a covenant defined God's relationship with humans from the start. If you recall um, our earlier study in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, what did God do after He created humans? He called them to become His partners for the common goal of creating good and filling the earth with God's goodness. So God bound himself to us, and if Adam were to honor this partnership and walk with the Lord as he goes on this good-filling project, humans would have continued to enjoy and reproduce the blessings of eternal life with God. But all of you guys know this story. Humans were to heed God's warning. They trusted in the wisdom of a creature instead of the words of God. They ate the forbidden fruit and brought upon the earth curse and evil instead of blessing and good. So our ancestor has failed to be God's partner. What did God do? Instead of cutting him loose and ending the partnership with humans at all, which he had every right to do, While God did hand them over the sum of the consequences of their sins, what God really did is ultimately double down and committed himself to us further by promising to us a Savior. Remember Genesis 3.15. After Adam fell into sin, instead of just simply giving them over to the death that they deserve, even though Adam, humans, were responsible for the fractured relationship, God instead intervened and extended grace through covenantally binding himself further to us by making another promise to repair this broken relationship and to rescue humans and the rest of creation through rising up, raising up one of Adam's descendants who will crush the enemy, the serpent's head who has deceived them. So what we see here, actually, in the days of Noah, is God doing the same thing. Because the covenant God made with Noah is not a new covenant altogether, but an extension of the covenant of grace that he made with Adam. You see, God saved Noah to be another representative, through whom God renews this covenant partnership that he already made with us, reaffirming to us, that the plan to partner with us isn't scrapped, it's still on track, even reassuring us that he will continue 
to preserve the world in the process of restoring us to this calling, showing us the character of God, that He is a God who will reliably commit to His covenant promises, no matter how much human evil has unleashed hurt and chaos in the world. Friends, this is the key aspect of God's character. In Hebrew, this covenant faithfulness is described as this world chesed. And if you read the Bible, it's most commonly translated in the ESV as steadfast love. And although the actual word is not written here, we actually see through Noah God's chesed on full display. Because what, friends, according to our text, was the trigger to the end of judgment? What stopped the rain from pouring and the waters from raging? Said clearly in chapter 8, verse 1. God remembered Noah. And when God remembers here, we must remember that doesn't mean that God is ever forgotten. It's not like God is saying, oh yeah, I did say that thing to that guy Noah. I wonder, I wonder how he's doing. Because what this phrase is trying to communicate is that actually this covenantal partnership, the promise that he made, is the basis for which God takes action. Meaning that this remembering is this act of God bringing this up to himself and it is the point in which he will pivot and act to fulfill his promise as he has always intended. So brothers and sisters, God's covenant faithfulness, His chesed, that He will continue to fulfill His promises, is good news to us. In fact, this character of God, chesed, is the promise for the good news at all, right? The gospel. Because what the gospel really says, basically, is that God had remembered our promises to us. And He has already sent the Savior to us who will crush the serpent's head. Friends, Jesus Christ is this covenant partner that we are waiting for. He is the fulfillment of God's promises. Jesus was the only one who succeeded to partner and trust God at every point where humanity failed. And on the cross, Jesus defeated the enemy, the power of evil, so that we may be set free. He crushed the serpent's head on the cross so that we might not be consumed when evil is finally cleansed and the world will be purified from sin for the final time, but we will be instead restored to the family of God. This is God's promise. And I understand, friends, it's really hard to keep on obeying this promise. It's really hard to live consistently like this because the chaos and corruption that we constantly have to deal with in the world can tempt us to think that maybe God has forgotten. And the manner and timing the will of God and when He will obey His promises is indeed often beyond our comprehension. It might take longer and look different to what we imagine. But the story of the flood teaches us that we must ultimately hold on and trust in this covenant, faithful, loyal character of God, that He will indeed make good on every promise He made. So 
let us live, friends, in light of the hope that God will indeed end sin when Jesus comes back. And rejoice in the promise that if we trust in Jesus, our future is in this purified creation with Him too. Therefore, presently, do not be confirmed to the culture that is given to sin. Rather, show the world how things will be when Jesus is king. Because Jesus is guaranteed that he will return when his kingdom comes in full, our faith will be sight. We will find our heart's greatest treasure. There will be finally rest for our souls and we will indeed see that it is well. And just like every promise he made, God will make good on this promise. Will you trust in it? Will you trust in him and be saved? And if you're not sure yet, friends, I assure you today that the doors of the ark is not yet shut. There is still time for you to enter. Put your faith in Christ. Do not let this moment pass. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, blessed are you, the Lord our God, great and powerful, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Lord, we know that we are guilty and that you will not leave the guilty unpunished. But we know even more that your mercy is more. That you are still extending your hand for us. You still offer us refuge though we are undeserving. Lord, make us aware of the chaos that we are living in in the world and give us this desire, this awareness to actually want to escape it so that we may truly enjoy this peace, this security that can only be found in knowing you and knowing that you are faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.